Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman and with me for the first time ever, our first ever guest host of Wings for Breakfast is our The Athletic Colorado Avalanche beat writer, Ryan Clark. Ryan, welcome to Wings for Breakfast. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. I thought uh, it'd be really fun to have Ryan on the show today, not just because obviously the Avalanche are in town to play the Red Wings on Monday, uh, but because he covers the team who can probably closest relate to where uh, these Red Wings are, or at least in the past has been able to relate. The Avalanche, obviously, in the 2016-17 season uh, had a 48-point season, a record that the Red Wings now look quite likely to break. They need uh, 14 points over their final 15 games to uh, avoid that. I don't see that happening. That's well uh, better than the pace they've been on so far this season. And considering kind of the murderer's row schedule in March they have, uh, I thought it'd be a little bit interesting to hear, number one, Ryan's perspective on, on how a team comes out of a season like that, uh, even though I know you weren't on the beat for that season specifically. But then also kind of an outside perspective on the Red Wings and what people around the league think. So uh, maybe just to get everyone familiar with you, you want to tell us a little bit about your background and uh, where you, how you come at all this? Yeah, sure. So my background, I mean, I started off as more or less a news reporter, but between the time I started through right now, I've covered Texas high school football, Indiana high school basketball, Minnesota high school hockey, South Florida high school sports. I covered some kid named Lamar Jackson who I don't think oh, ever okay. amounted to anything. I'll look him up. Yeah. And then I did Florida State for two years, the Washington Huskies for a season. And then, yeah, I've been at the Athletic for two years. So hockey's what I've always wanted to do. And so I covered USHL and I covered that league at a time when – so the Dubuque Fighting Saints were this like killer, killer squad. But all everyone kept talking about was like Vinny Sapineri, but yet like – the three guys on that team who they had were Zengis Gergensen's a okay. first rounder, Michael Madison a first rounder, and then this guy who went, I think, in the third or fourth round named Johnny Gaudreau. Oh, okay. And so, like, it was just such a fun league to cover. And so it's weird to, like, you see those guys, Jordan Schmaltz, whenever he plays, um, guy, like, different players like that. So, for example, take Alex Iafalo with the Kings. He was one of the kids I covered in Fargo. So, like, it was just so wild to see him the first time. And so, yeah, that's just kind of been my background. USHL is fascinating, too. It feels like that's always getting more respect lately than, than it, you know, maybe historically it had. Well, you know, because I think one of the things is this. Like, when you look at that league, I think for so long people looked at it as if you're looking for a guy in rounds four through seven, maybe that's your best option. But when you're seeing this league not only produce those first-round talents – but those later round picks like a Gaudreau, like a Jacob Slavin, who've gone on to do some really important things and be critical pieces of their respective franchises, like that certainly helps. And not only that, but I think part of it too is there's been more of a respect for what the college game has done, what it can produce, and just how with college players, it's like it's a viable route. It's not just, hey, if you're a big name, you just go major junior. Like you're yeah. seeing college players do really well in the NHL. So that's definitely part of it, but also the component too and I know with some teams it's a little bit of a, a tough decision, but like you can't ignore the impact the national team development program has had on that league. Because I mean, like even in the time I covered it, like you saw Seth Jones and you saw J.T. Miller and um, you saw Truba and Shea. I mean, like it was just it was a killer team to watch. So that's probably what it is. It's just it's it's everything kind of coming together at the right time, but. People also know this is what this league does well. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to your kind of current yeah. game right now, like. The Avalanche, to me, are the most fun team in the league to watch. Whenever they're on a national TV game, they're they're an absolute riot. And it, I don't think it's just about the star players. What are they like to cover this season? Oh, they're fascinating. Yeah. I mean, they're absolutely fascinating. Because, I mean, like, you have an entire dressing room full of, like, just different personalities that can talk about, like, different things. So, like, with Nikita Zadorov, like, I'll do – I did a Q&A with him last year where we talked about Russian politics and his stance on – the internet bill and, huh. and just kind of how like with his problem was is like he's like you look at Kylie Jenner she became a billionaire off of her Instagram feed so why are you going to deny an entire nation full of people that opportunity um, with kids like Kale McCarr I mean who I got to know well because I have a relationship with him and his family like with Kale it's talking to him and his dad about like hey the last two summers he's gone to the Calgary Stampede working 10, 12-hour days, coming home smelling like oil, so he would have spending money, whereas if this year he goes to the Stampede, he gets a beef on a bun sandwich for free instead of having the mango. (laughs) But then, like, with other guys, too, it's just discussing, like, different things. Like, with Ian Cole and Matt Calvert, you can talk about X's and O's. With Nathan McKinnon, I mean, you can talk about hip-hop and current events. Like, him and I 
last year we had a conversation about Nipsey Hussle when Nipsey Hussle died. And it turned into a, then a bigger conversation about, like, this is what America was like during OJ. Like, I mean, these are just kind of what it's like to cover these guys people-wise. The hockey, I mean, it's just fascinating because, like, you have to look at it in three phases. Like, and we'll touch on this more, but there's, like, this phase of guys like Landeskog and Johnson who remember what this team was. There were guys like McKinnon who've come along a little bit later who, like, were there at the beginning to see what it was like and have kind of seen the transformation. And then there's this group of young players like Gerard, like McCarr. I mean, they called up Martin Kaut, along with these other new players like Burakovsky and Kadri, who, like, they're coming in, and it's like, well, they've been aware of what it was like on the ground floor. Like, they're helping this team rise. I'm fascinated because as, you know, someone who covers a team where prospects, rightfully so, dominate so much. Sure, Absolutely. When last year do you think people started to realize that Kale McCarr wasn't just like the Avalanche's top prospect, that he was like the top prospect in the league and the, you know, potential Calder winner one year later? Probably December. Yeah. Because like in the beginning of the year, he had such a great start. But then I think December hits and the Avalanche went on a slide. I mean, they started off the year well, but like they went on a slide that lasted through February realistically. And at that time, fans were just looking around going like, well, they're not going to make the playoffs, or at least it appears that way. What's a bright spot? And you've got what he's doing out at UMass, and people are gravitating. And so we ended up doing a big story, which I'm going to give you credit here. Like, last time I was in Detroit, I sat down with you and Craig, and you and him were like, have you thought about going to UMass and doing a profile on Campbell Carr where you hang out with him for a day? And, like, you two were, like, the genesis of how that story got started. So there you go. I'm bragging on you on your own podcast. There you go. Write that uh, down. Write that down. <laughs> and, so, and so, like, we got a chance to, like, do this story that told people, like, here's who he is as this person. But also, like, here's what makes him this really exceptional hockey player. And that's where his head coach was like, I coached Eric Carlson. He is the next Eric Carlson. And, like, it just kind of took off. And so that's, I think, kind of when people realized it. It's been fascinating to watch, and I think, you know, maybe something that I think Red Wings fans may be able to draw a little bit of hope from because he's a guy who came out of this draft where the Avalanche were the worst team in the league, right. the worst team in the salary cap era. Not only did they not get the number one pick, they fall the maximum number of possible spots to number four overall. And their reward at the time seems like, oh, they're going to miss out on these picks. Well, they may have just gotten the best player in that draft class. Well, and that's the funny part is looking at 17, if you were to redraft – we know who's going one through three, but right. just what order? Like, do you go with Patterson? Do you go with Heisken? And do you go with McCarr? It seems like right now there's no wrong answer. But, again, just looking back on that, it's fascinating because that's what Avalanche fans in the front office are kind of hoping 2019 is a repeat of that where, look, for the longest time, because they had Ottawa's first rounder, the, the initial thought was maybe this is Jack Hughes or Capo Caco. Mm-hmm. They end up with Bowen Byram, who's deemed the best defensive prospect in the draft. And now they're looking at that draft going like, okay, could lightning strike twice? And then when you look at what's going on with Boston College with Alex Newhook going at 16, like people are starting to look at that 2019 class, not just the first round, but beyond and go, could they have something here? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to get your perspective as someone who, you know, I I obviously watch every Red Wings game. I am around the team constantly. And I wonder sometimes how different the perspective is from – but I take being, you know, obviously around a lot versus someone who, I don't know how many Red Wings games you necessarily watch, but what's kind of your perception of the season the Red Wings have had? It's almost isolated in the sense of when you look at them versus, let's say, Ottawa, Los Angeles, New Jersey, and Anaheim, they're in a separate category because Los Angeles has the benefit of they're one of the top prospect systems. So you know the future is coming. And plus, you've got two building blocks still in their prime and Andre Kopitar as well as Drew Doughty. And it's just a matter of do you fill in around that? And plus, when you know those prospects are ready, they're going to have cap space. L.A. is an attractive sell. Anaheim, a little bit of a similar situation with Getzloff. And their prospect base, while it isn't as, as heralded, as the Kings, it's still in a better position than most. Well, they've got Trevor Zegers, who's Corey's number exactly. one prospect. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so I mean, like, there's a definitely a bright future there, like Max Comtois, yep. Sam Steele, Troy Terry. I mean, again, it, it's all right there. And you've got a cornerstone goalie in John Gibson, which mm-hmm. sometimes that's the hardest piece sure. to find. And good, you know, young, youngish D still. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you got like Silverberg and Raquel. I mean, again, yeah. like, there's names. But then when you look at like Ottawa for all the struggles they've gone through, 
the Senators still have two first-rounders that could conceivably be one and two. We don't know what they're going to be, but we know they're going to be lottery picks. And not only that, but like they've got Thomas Shabbat. They've got uh, Brady Kachuk. They've got Colin White. They've got these young players. And you're seeing what Anthony DeClaire is doing this season to where you're thinking, okay, they're playing a lot better than they were last year. And you can see where there's a future going. And with New Jersey, yes, there's been some struggles. But you do have Jack Hughes. You've got Ty Smith, who just, I think, what, had like a five or eight point night out in Spokane not that long ago. I mean, and so you look at that and you're like, okay, they just need a few more pieces. Whereas if you look at the Red Wings, beyond what's there in Larkin, Anthony Mantha, I mean, and let's say Tyler Bertuzzi, it's 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 difficult because Mort Sider is definitely a player that people think can do something, but at the same time, it's like what makes it hard is, but what else in the system is there? Like what else is there that you look at and say can turn this around? And not only that, but it's just like, well, and you and I wrote about this, you know, about a month or two ago. Like you have players like Ian Cole and Nikita Zadorov saying like, look, this is a state and a place that a lot of American guys want to come play. Yeah. How long before that kind of comes to fruition? And I think that's where the Red Wings are kind of in their own wilderness because, like, you can see the potential at some point, but in terms of feeling how they get from point A to point Z, I think that's where everybody's trying to figure it out. Yeah, no, I agree, and I I think that is kind of the big mystery because while I do think there's a couple of prospects in the system who you mentioned more at Cider, obviously Philip Zadina. Um, I don't know if he technically counts as a prospect anymore. He's kind of he's kind of made it. Um, a lot of that's the strength of the Red Wings system is that is they're deep. They got you know good centers down the pipeline, but they don't have anyone else who I think could be that number one right, right there with Dylan Larkin. Right, I think good teams want to have two number one centers. Right, um, and and I think the the way that they are going to get from point A to point Z is going to have to be great drafting. And they can you know they can hope all they want that the eighteen eighteen point five percent chance of getting Alexi Lafreniere conveys, uh, but ultimately. Most good NHL teams do it not just because they had the number one overall pick. I know there's those stats about how many of the cup teams have had a number one, and uh, I'm sure that helps, but but not every number one wins, right? And it, so it's, so much of it is about that supplemental core and what you put around those guys. And for my money, I think the Avalanche have done that about as well as anyone. It, it's not just McKinnon, it, you know, and Landeskog obviously a high pick McCarr, but you know I think Rantanen's great, and I think Joe Sakic has made such savvy additions to build out that top nine i'm curious how that uh i guess how that how does that compare to, to your impressions of why the current team succeeds well so let's take a two-prong approach sure. just the first thing you were saying is just because you have first round picks doesn't mean it's always going to pan out i think edmonton's a really strong For sure. example of that like yes you've seen taylor hall you've seen Connor mcdavid and i mean yes nugent hopkins has been a strong top nine player but at the same time, like there have been some misses like now Yakupov. Like there've definitely been some moves when you look back at those drafts, you just wonder maybe what could have been different. You know, and or if you're in the case of the Buffalo Sabres, well you may not have always had number one, you've always been in contention, and I'm sure there's a redo that they some of those people would like to have back. So there is that. But I think as it relates to the Avalanche, I mean like here's kind of I guess the wild part in hearing you say this. So you talk about what they've done with their first round pick. So let's start in 2011. Landeskog goes second. Right. McKinnon in 2013 goes first. You have Ronson in going 10th in 2015. Tyson Jost goes 10th in 2016. Makar is fourth in 2017. Kaup was 16th and, and 2018. And of course we just talked about Byron and Newhook. But here's the other thing about that that kind of doesn't get discussed. Your 09 first rounder, Matt Deshane, was gone. You yeah. got a you know a, a hall term. form, yeah. but he was gone. Joey Hishin, your first round pick in 2010. I mean, injuries kind of derailed his career, and it just never was what it was. 2012, they didn't have a first rounder. 2013, their excuse me, 2014, their first rounder was Connor Bleakley, who you know look didn't end up signing. What he pick up, was he? He was 23rd. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and he, he didn't end up signing. And so, like that's just it. It's like there have been first rounders where they've missed, but like one of the biggest things that plagued the Avalanche for so long, Max was. It was drafting beyond the first round with legitimate success. So 2009, the reason that stands out is because that's the draft they got Tyson Berry and Ryan O'Reilly. And between those two and DeShane, you thought, okay, this is the foundation for what it's going to be. Of course, DeShane and O'Reilly leave town. But beyond that, like they've really, really struggled in the sense of just trying to find guys 
beyond the first round who could play. So, like, let's take the 2014 class, for example. How many games do you think total the 2014 class has played in the NHL? Boy, it's got to be less than 50. 66, and they all belong to Anton Lindholm, and Anton Lindholm was a fifth-round pick. And so that's just it. It's like this was a team that really had to figure out how do you circumvent that. So, of course, they made moves in free agency, the waiver wire trades, to sort of build that up. And now they're at a point where they've been able to supplement that high-end talent. But for them, the next step is how do we – draft this from within so that way we can get these players on ELCs we don't have to outsource and not only that but it's the philosophy and Philip Grubauer talked about this when he was with Washington he said one of the reasons they had success with the Capitals because those draft classes all grew up together and he was like because of that everybody understood this was the goal they understood the system what the demands were kind of in the sense of like okay if you're going to play here this is what it means. And not only that, but you're able to build these sort of friendships. Andre Burakovsky, Tom Wilson being a great example of that. And so for them, that's the next step is how do you make that more organic and homegrown so you're not necessarily outsourcing. Yeah. And they, they did kind of wait. You know, we, we look at this great offseason that Joe Sackick just had. I'd call it an A-plus offseason with the guys that he brought in between Don Skoy, the Chewskin. Uh, help me out here. Bur- Andre Burakovsky, right. Nazem Kadri. I mean, and I mean, and the funny part is, like, Pablo Francis was already in Loveland, sure. but they made this decision to move on from Simeon Varlamov yeah. to bring him in. And again, we talk about this off season. Like, you look at what Byram is doing. I mean, he's picked it up lately. Yeah. Like we were saying at dinner. I mean, there's talk about Alex Newhook being a Hobie Baker candidate. Yeah. And the wildest part is, with all that going on, everybody forgets. Oh yeah, they had to resign Nico Rantanen as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that the way that that has worked out has put them into maybe one of the two or three best teams in position for sustainable winning. And I think it's one thing to talk about being able to, you know, the Red Wings have a lot of cap space. If they wanted to, they could go out this summer and throw a boatload of money at some really good players. I just don't know that that makes you a sustainable winner in this same mold as, as, as with the Avalanche. They brought in great secondary pieces once they were sure the core in place was the core they needed. Well, but you look around the league, and Vancouver's a team that's in a similar situation, yeah. and that, like, there are some players that they were able to draft and develop that were homegrown who've turned into something like Elias Patterson, Brock Besser. We look at uh, Quinn Hughes. Jake Vertanen has turned it around. I mean, Thatcher Demko, there's now going to be a lot of expectation to see what he does, but then again, he's a guy that came with a lot of expectations. But then when you're able to make these trades like they did for JT Miller this past offseason, like, that helps. And so again, it's kind of like you said, when you have the first round talent, it helps. But what are you doing to fill in those pieces? But here's the thing. That's again, that's a battle that takes a lot of time to fight. So 2016, 17, it wasn't that long ago. But when you look at even just what this roster was last year compared to this year, I mean, last year it was a team that if that top line wasn't scoring, they were done for. Whereas if you look at this five, excuse me, 16 winning streak they're on, McKinnon hasn't scored in five straight, and they still won. That's astonishing. Yeah, not something that they could have done a couple of years ago. Something they could have done last year. Because, yeah. I mean, last year, they went through injuries. But when they were without Landeskog and Rontanen, it was really just kind of like, okay, how do they make this work? Yeah. Whereas if earlier in the year they lost uh, Landeskog and Rontanen, they said, okay, let's play Matt Calvert with Giannis Donskoy and have them be the flanks while McKinnon's down the middle. And it led to this line where you have two guys where their whole position is to work for the puck, cycle, and feed Nathan McKinnon. I mean, morbidly obese feed Nathan McKinnon. And it ended up having success. They couldn't have done that a year ago. One of the things that I was, you know, when when you and I were reporting this story we did last time the Red Wings and Avalanche played in in January, um, a lot of the, the, the quotes that you brought to the story, I was... A little surprised at how, with the exception of the understanding everyone has, that the Red Wings still need their kind of elite guy at the very top, there was optimism in the Avalanche locker room about the future of the Red Wings, that they could get things back on track. Where do you think that kind of came from? Well, I mean, you have to look at it in two ways. So the two people we talked to were Ian Cole yeah. and Nikita Zadorov. So with Ian Cole, Ian Cole grew up in, in Ann Arbor. He grew up watching the Red Wings. And he's in a team that, look, Joe Sackick was one of his favorite players growing For up. For sure. So was Steve Eiserman as well. So there's something to be said for, okay, here's this iconic figure who knows what it means to win and not just win, but be the face of winning. Because, I mean, we talk about that era of the NHL, and, look, Sackick and Eiserman were two of the faces. Like, I mean, 
every year in the West, it felt like if it wasn't Colorado, it was Detroit or vice versa. So that certainly helps. But part of it, too, is just like you think about Detroit. Like it's a city that not only cares about sports, but it cares about the Red Wings. It can say it's hockey town down the middle of the ice and few can question it. But not only that, but like this is not even just a city or a region, but it's a state where look, you look at the youth programs between Little Caesars, between Honeybake, between Compuware, like it matters here. And so not only that, but when you look at the kids who come from this mm-hmm. state, when you look at the kids who play college hockey at Michigan, at Michigan State, at Michigan Tech, I mean, wherever, like, this is a hotbed. So, like, for Ian Cole, that's how he looks at it is, like, if you are wanting to play in a place where it matters, you go there. And Nikita Zadorov, his argument was, like, look, it's not so much it's the original six, but, like, Detroit is a team that you just look at, and it's one of those, you think of the NHL, they're one of the first teams that come to mind. But the other thing that helps, like he said, too, is you do have a lot of American players who are from Michigan or who played at the NTDP who would like to come back here at some point. And, like, he even said, too, like, Detroit is a city that it is on the rise. You're seeing an organization that's led by someone like Steve Eiserman, and that's just it. It's like, not to get too HGTV, it's like, you see the bones of the house and you're like, okay, this works. But it's just a matter of like not so much what do you do to fill it in because it's easy to say here's what they need to do. But it's just where is that going to come from and how long is it going to take to get there? Yeah, Ryan Clark, the long-lost property brother. Uh, I don't know about all that. I mean, like, <laughs> lover, you're more of a lover realistic guy. No, actually, like, we, my wife and I watch Property Brothers a yeah. lot. I mean, like, I'm probably going to sound like an idiot here. But, like, the running joke, like, there's two with us where it's like, Hi, I'm a seahorse rancher. Hi, I paint letters on candy. Our budget is three point three million, and not a penny over. Um, you don't have a three point three million in an account sitting somewhere? Uh, just two seven. I thought everyone did. Just two seven. Two seven. Okay. Yeah, you look, must have spent some of it already, though. I mean, look, we have cats. We've got a few, <laughs> and they they really expensive. They like the Magnum ice cream. They're just so greedy. But like the other joke too with us is like every time like you watch those shows, it's always like it's the same couple where it's like, hi, I'm so and so. Hi, I'm so and so. But to be serious, like I mean, it's just when you look at the what the Red Wings could do, like everyone's going to always have this image of like. This is the team that, what was it, in 89, they had the greatest draft an organization has, like, ever seen. It's like, hi, our ninth rounder played 500 games, you know? Unbelievable. And so people have always kind of associated, at least in the last 30 years, like, this is a team that's going to find a way to get it done. And so when you have that going for you, all the things we mentioned about the guys who have ties to Michigan are just – American players who would want to play here on top of the fact that you look at what Iserman did in Tampa with the idea that maybe he can replicate that maybe not to the point where you have four cornerstone players and Kucherov, Stamkos, Vasilevsky and Hedman and maybe a borderline fifth in point the thought is everything could happen but just no one knows when or how yeah absolutely okay well let's get into some of the GM talks I think that's going to be some of the most interesting sure you, know, you got two Absolutely legendary captains of, of the franchises they're now at the helm of in an executive capacity. I think Joe Sackick's done an outstanding job in knowing what that team needs and knowing how much is worth spending to get it, right? Uh, asset management, all that stuff. In your mind, why has he succeeded so far as Avalanche GM? I think it goes back to one big concept, which is just patience. Yeah. And one of the things that's helped is when he took over the Avalanche, I mean, they'd gone through like a couple failed attempt at rebuilds because there's, if you look at the breakdown of coaches, like Patrick Waugh here, let's pull it up real quick. Avalanche coaches. So you look at Patrick Waugh. That first year he makes it, I believe it's what, his first season, they make the playoffs. Right. And everybody's thinking, okay, happy days are here again. And turns out it wasn't. But then you saw other failed attempts at trying to make this thing work. And so it's clear, if it's working once out of every three years and you're firing coaches, maybe there's just something different that needs to be done. So with him, it was a matter of taking a patient approach. And you saw that with the Matt DeShane trade. People thought for every week Matt DeShane sat in Denver, they weren't going to get anything out of it. And when you look at what that trade brought back, I mean, people are talking about it as like, could this be a franchise-defining trade, you know? And so, like, that's just it. It's like, it's a patience that was shown with that. It was a patience that was shown with how to build this team and how to develop prospects as well. So, really, that'd probably be it. Yeah. 
How do you think the fan base responded to that? I mean, I think the Detroit fans are mostly receptive to the idea because they they just want it to work. But at the same time, this is a city that saw the playoffs for 25 straight years, and this will be number four without them. I'm curious, you know, what was the uh, appetite for patience in, in Denver? Probably early on. It would probably be difficult just because, I mean, how could it not be? Whereas if you look at it now, and there's a lot of fans, it's hard to put a percentage on the, let's say, at least 60 to 70 maybe, yeah, who believe, like, patience is the key. And you saw that during the trade deadline. So, I mean, of course, there is a talk about could they be in the market for Chris Kreider and the deadline passed. I mean, they made some moves. But people are like, well, there's some people who are like, I want the big move. And then there are others who go, no, the small move because they have to think about the future with how much money they're going to pay guys because you look at what their cap situation is going to be the next four years. Like, they have to start thinking about these things now. In fact, they've been thinking about it years in advance just because, I mean, we have cap friendly up right now. But when you sit there and look at it, 23-24, there's a lot of money coming off the books, but you also have to re-sign one Nathan Raymond McKinnon. Um, you look at what's going on this year. You've got this big RFA class where Andre Burkowski could score 27 goals. Thought is he gets 4 to $5 million. Ryan Graves not only leads the league in plus-minus, but like... It's him who's become not only the first pairing to uh, partner with Kale McCarr, but you look at them and you go 21 and 24. This could be the beginning of a long-term partnership. And if so, that's going to cost. But then you have to worry about what do they do with Tyson Jost. And then when you think about these future years, like Grubauer and Landeskog are going to be up pretty soon. And then you've got to figure out McCarr's deal, which if you're using Thomas Shabbat as a comparable Who's to say that the price of that doesn't go up because of what he's doing already? And then you also have to think about, too, like what's this going to look like in a few years' time um, when some of your prospects are up for a new deal? Like what's going to, what's Bowen Byron going to be like? What's Shane Bauer is going to be like? What is Alex Newhook going to be like? So it's all these decisions. But again, it's about playing the long game. Yeah. Well, what fascinates me is I just, I don't know that I see a bad dollar amount on the whole cap sheet. Like as, as we're looking through this, you know, like I think. Just about everybody's worth what they're getting. I mean, Eric Johnson, maybe six, might be a little steep for this point in his career. Sure, but at the same but time, other it's than that. Like, but, but like, you're not looking at the Johnson contract thinking, okay, this is an albatross yeah. that is crippling them. No, it's not that at all. It's just like at the time he signed that deal, that was the going rate yeah. for a player like that. But at the same time, like you've been able to work around that by saying we're going to make an investment in defense. And so when you look at the year of 2017, and this is a story that we're going to look at doing maybe a little bit later, but when you look at 2017, you can make the argument, this is the year they built their defense of the future because 2017, they draft Kale McCarr fourth. They take Connor Timmins second in the second round. 2017 is the same year they made the Matt DeShane trade. They get Sam Girard, and then that's the pick that ends up being Bowen Byram. And then that's also a pick, too, there was also some picks in that deal where they moved it to Pittsburgh in exchange for a couple later round picks. And one of them became Danila Zhirolov, who is the sixth rounder in Russia, that there is a thought within that organization. He could be in the U.S. and maybe playing in the NHL in two or three years. He's been with the Russian national team the last two years at the World Juniors. And so, like, to think that in one year they could possibly fill that many defensive spots, at least four guys they feel confident about for sure, I mean – Again, it just goes back to playing the long game and being patient. Yeah. No, I think it's a great point. I wonder uh, what are the you, – you mentioned Tyson Jost. To me, he's like – the Revens kind of have a type when, when they've made trades, and they're high-pedigree players who, for whatever reason, aren't getting an opportunity. And I can't help but think Tyson Jost may be the best player out there who fits that description left. There were some rumors around the deadline that right. he might be on the move. Where do you think that kind of stands as of now? Is that something that you think, you know, could that could he be available again this summer? Nobody knows because, yeah. like, when you sit there and you look at the roster, so just to everyone listening, visualize this team's roster when everyone yeah. is healthy. So your top line is going to be Gabriel Landeskog, Nathan McKinnon, Miko Ronson, and your second line is uh, Andre Burakovsky, Nazem Kadri, Giannis Donskoy. Your third line is Vladislav Nemesikanov, 
you're going to have uh, uh, JT Comfort as your center and Valeri Nichushkin at right wing. And then your fourth line is Matt Calvert, Pierre Edward Belmar, and Matt Nieto, which puts them in a competition for top five fourth lines in the league. Yeah. Where does Tyson Jones play? So you're seeing him play on the PK, which it's getting him that extra skill. But at the same time, when you think about like the bodies they have on PK, and that's what made Kina Mestikhanov so important for them because it's like that guy – while his numbers may not be super high, he gets at the net front. He gets opportunities at the net front. He plays a lot of time on the PK, and he currently leads the league in shorthanded goals. So it's not even just the fact it's an extra yeah. body; it's an extra body with the versatility. Yeah. And that's and why when you look at role exactly, and that's why when you look at their bottom six, like it's a hard bottom six to crack. And so when you're Tyson Jost, the question is like, are you the odd man out? Now, granted. Like, there's going to be some free agent decisions they've got to make, so maybe he still stays. But again, that's kind of the chicken or the egg discussion yeah. with him is like, and we recently had this in a story. So, and our story about Joe's, like, there was the lead, the beginning of the story talked about how there was a player who was at Pepsi Center in the visitor's locker room who saw that he was the fourth line center and said, how is a top 10 pick supposed to realize his potential when he's only playing a handful of minutes, 10 to 12 every night? Yeah. And so that's just it. It's like, is this the place where they can give him those minutes? But then the fear is this. Let's say you move him. What's what stopping him? What if, not only if he's great, but what about the grand irony of you just spent an offseason giving Nazem Kadri, Giannis Donskoy, Andre Burakovsky, and Valeri Nichushkin a passport to the island of misfit toys only to see a guy go somewhere else and do the same thing. So that's the reality of like what moving Tyson Jones could mean. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And eventually, you know, those are the kind of problems a good team hopes to have. The problems oh, the exactly. Reds have are not the problems you want to have. Those are the kind of problems you want to have. But you know, but again, it's just remember, it wasn't that long ago people looked at Tyson Jones and thought he was going to be the second He's line part center. Of the yeah. And now we're having this discussion of are they becoming one of those teams where because they're so stacked. Does a guy like that get an opportunity? Because like that's the other thing is like you look at the different prospect ratings from like our Corey Promen and Scott Wheeler. Yeah. The consensus is the Avs are a top five system. Yeah. So at some point, those young guys who are in the system have got to play. But when you look at Tyson Jost, what they do with him, especially now that this is the last year of his ELC, it's going to be intriguing because whoever gets him, I mean, you're probably going to have to give up something substantial. But he's a guy that's you could sign to a one-year contract or a bridge deal, a prove-it deal, and you're hoping that maybe for the low amount you're paying, you're taking a chance on a guy who turns 22 in March, and it could be something. Yeah, that's fascinating. Awesome. All right, well, I put out a little call when we started here for, for questions. Uh, we got quite a few good ones. I think I want to start with some of the abs ones. because. Uh, oh, I was hoping we would start with the guy who was just like, when will the pain stop? Because I saw that and I laughed. <laughs> we get that every week, actually. So <laughs> why am I not shocked? <laughs> uh, this is from Vanessa, though, and and she wants to know from you what about sports journalism was it that made you go? Yeah, those are the kind of stories I, I want to tell. And she says, "Apps fans are, are glad that you did make that decision." Well, Vanessa, first of all, uh, you're going to be added to payroll, so congratulations. <laughs> That's why it's only two point seven billion and not the three. Uh, Again, cap space. Because the rest going to Vanessa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cap space. But, um, you know, what it is is this. Um, you know, I think when you realize this is what you want to do for a living, you start reading the really good stories. And you start asking yourself, how did this person get this story? And with a dressing room like the Avalanche, for me, it was an amazing opportunity. Because, I mean, you and I were talking about this before. Like, when you cover college sports, you have access. But, like... It's only for five minutes. You have other reporters who are there. You don't get a chance to build these relationships. Whereas with the abs, it's like, wait, so let me get this straight. So you get 25 minutes to talk to whoever you want for however long you want about whatever you want. How do you not make the most of that? And so I would say really that's probably what it is. It's just sitting there and not only just looking at the numbers, looking at how they play, but it's also looking at other things too. So like, let's take Ryan Graves as an example. Like you're not talking about this at dinner. Like Ryan Graves was someone that they got in a defenseman for defenseman trade for Chris Beagrock. And so Ryan Graves spends three years in the Ranger system, doesn't get a sniff. He comes to Colorado in 18 months. He's in the NHL. And so it was talking to him about like, how did you get to this point? And so talking to Greg Cronin, the Eagles coach, he was really good about understanding and laying out within so much because he doesn't want to give away all his secrets 
about this is what he, they did technically to make Ryan Graves better. And, like, it's a story like that where, like, yes, you're explaining kind of how did you get from point A to point Z, but at the same time, like, the way you can talk about it and describe it makes it relatable. So, I mean, I would say that's probably what it is. I hope I answered that question decently. No, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think you, you come at it from one of my favorite writers in our network to read just because there's such a good balance, I think, from you in terms of the, the variability of story. Like, Okay, you're getting added to payroll twice. Excellent. <laughs> Am I getting as much as Vanessa's? You know, I'm not going to talk about that. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to be like an NHL GM and be like, look, the conversations we have with our players and their representatives <laughs> stay between us because, like, look, you know, we don't want to put things that are sensitive out there because, you know, look, I mean, we all just want to build the best team possible. So we're not going to talk about that five minutes later. Everyone goes to cap friendly. Yeah, absolutely. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I, I like to, to think of our listeners as my agents. but uh, I understand uh, This next one's from Chris. Chris wants to know, was there a moment that the Avalanche knew – this might have been before you got there, but in, in any of your conversations since arriving, did they knew McKinnon had taken the next step towards stardom? Have you ever talked about when they, they figured that out? You know, it's interesting because for them, they always felt the talent was there. Yeah. And in terms of that moment of when it clicked, no one is specifically said because it's always kind of been the segmented conversation. So you talk to Tyson Berry, and Tyson Berry thinks before he got traded, it was watching McKinnon change his diet. Because he was like with McKinnon, he's like when McKinnon was a rookie, he'd come onto the plane with pops and chip and chips and this and that. Whereas if now, like he is the most physically ripped player, like on that team. I mean, it's incredible, and to the point where it's like, and I wrote about this with Matt Calvert. Matt Calvert's like, I changed my diet because of Nathan McKinnon. Yeah. Yeah, and so like, it's that. But the thing that I kind of want to ask, and I feel weird saying this out loud because I'm giving away a story idea. So, like, someone does before me. Thanks, Max. It's all your fault. But I kind of wonder how much the World Cup of Hockey changed things for him. Mm. Because it's like prior to that, people knew about him. They were aware of him. But he hadn't necessarily hit the heights you would expect of being a number one pick. He has an overtime goal against Henrik Lundqvist. And everyone just remembers looking at the skill at that moment and thinking, Maybe he's about to break through. So, I mean, it could be that. It could be something else. But, like, there hasn't really been anyone who's like, this was the moment. It was almost like it was a series of moments that built toward it. It's fascinating, though, because I think it does speak to, you know, even a, even a, a incredibly talented young player has to learn certain things about being a pro before they're right. going to be able to tap all the way into the No matter how, I mean, Nick McKinnon was a good player right away. But... You find new ways as a pro to to get to your maximum potential and even exceed maybe some of what people thought he could be. Definitely. And I mean, look, and there's so much been said and understandably so about his relationship with Sidney Crosby, being from the same hometown, like working with Andy O'Brien, like they work out together. Sure. But at the same time, just because you have that resource available doesn't mean you don't give this guy credit for what he's done. I mean, you talk to guys on that team and they all say he wants to win incredibly bad and there's something to be said for that but I think the other thing you have to look at it from it is from this prism in the sense of when Nathan McKinnon was an eight or nine year old he was told you're the best player at any level you've been at and for him to kind of continue building towards that it's about taking that next step I mean sure when you're a nine year old I mean there's always so much you can do but when you're a 22 23 year old you have greater access to everything. And a guy like that clearly wants to be the best. And look, I mean, you look at the work he's put in, that's what it is. So I think it's a culmination of things. But to say, like, what one thing it was, it's an incomplete picture. For several. Awesome. Chris also asked a part two question that I'll tackle, which was, uh, do I think AHL eligibility will be a factor at all in the Red Wings draft strategy if they miss out on the first overall pick? The, my answer would be no. I, I think they're not going to worry about the timeline of getting someone um, to the to the kind of the, the North American uh, you know pro system. I, I think I understand the the question kind of comes from a, the idea. There's a couple of OHL prospects who may be seeming to kind of outgrow that league, right? And Marco Rossi and maybe Quentin Byfield to a little bit lesser degree um, because he's so young, Who where they would have to play either in the NHL or go back and, you know, play again in a league where they've dominated to the tune of, you know, in, in Rossi's case, over two points a game and Byfield's case close to that. Um, I don't think that, though, will be the factor. I think ultimately... Whoever they pick, they're going to pick because they think they can be the best player, not because it's going to be the guy who's going to kind of most naturally um, slot into those trajectories. But I think it's interesting, and I think especially when you get into some of the European guys, um, I think it's interesting what what 
kind of knowledge you may be able to glean from guys who have played in any capacity in pro. And I, I, I want to get into that at some point um, whenever I can about how much teams value it. I'm, I'm curious about it. Have you ever heard any Avs people talk about the benefits of drafting guys who have already played kind of pro or, you know, whether it's the SHL or in this case, you know, the DEL would be the option with Tim Stutzla? Not necessarily. It's interesting, though. I mean, I mean it's, inter- yeah. it's, it's interesting because, I mean, like, you look at, like, let's take Miko Rontanen yeah. and him playing against grown men in Finland. Absolutely. Like, it's some, like, it's something that helped him, but at the same time, like, for them, there's like, there was still an adjustment he needed to make to North America because of the rink size, the pace of the game, the style of the game. So, again, every organization is different, but I think for the ads, that's how they looked at it. Whereas if you look at Eustace and Noonan, who is one of their top prospects who is setting records over in Finland, for them, they look at it as, okay, he's a 20-year-old doing this against grown men, yeah. but it's still the idea of how do you parlay that into success here. So let's take Pavel Francouz. Like, I mean, you look at the year Pavel Francouz is having. and every, How did they get him at $2 million a year, by the way? Um, so here's probably what it was. Francouz says he wanted to be here. Yeah. He feels a loyalty to the Avalanche because it goes back to the fact that he was an undersized goalie who people felt in this era where everyone wants between 6'2 and 6'4, there's not necessarily a place for you, even though you look at Anton Hudobin, you look at Yaroslav Halak, and I mean, clearly, I mean, even UC Soros last night. Sure. That's what made that game so interesting is like, it's this big game between two guys who people think like, you're too small to play that position, and it was a 3-2 game. And so when you look at Francois, the Avalanche were the only team that offered him an NHL contract. And if you sit there and you look back at it, you're like, okay, so he was the best goalie in the extra liga. He was the best goalie in the KHL. And he had a fourth place finish at the Olympics. Like, what more does he need to do for someone to say, let's take a flyer on this guy? And so that's where it's like, I think they look at, all of these leagues and say, here are the advantages that come with them. Yeah. But in the sense of like, is that something where they think, okay, is this a make or break? No. Cause what they're looking for is guys who fit what they of want. Course, yeah. But in the terms of like those guys who played pro, I mean, it certainly helps. Cause minimize some uncertainty. Exactly. But yeah. for them, whoever they bring over from a pro league in Europe, they want to know how is this going to work with the yeah. North American game. And for them, what Francois did in the AHL answered all those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Uh, Liv says, she loves your writing, first of all. Thank and you, Liv. Payroll. You're the best. Uh, She's going on payroll, too. Yep. She wants to know which teams we think should be the new rivals for the Red Wings and the Avalanche. You go first. Well, I think the Red Wings have somewhat, well, maybe now it's New Jersey after they've brawled with Jack Hughes sufficiently. Clearly. Um, no, I mean, I think there's a few kind of teams that the Red Wings have had uh, sufficient tension with. I mean, they actually got into it a little bit with the Avalanche at some point. Um, last year, but you know the, the Devils, I think are are an interesting one because of the same rebuilding timeline. Sure, I think ultimately that has to play a part in this. But I, I think the team, you know, Ottawa is, is going to be the the team that I think most Red Wings fans. Which that's so find. wild. Well, it's hilarious. They're just I think Red Wings fans are going to find themselves so bitter about <laughs> Ottawa's draft situation this year with potentially two top seven picks or whatever it's going to end up being. Worst case scenario for Ottawa, two top seven. Uh, I can see the resentment boiling over among the fan bases, uh, but I don't know if it'll translate that way on the players. And same deal, I would say, with Montreal, because Red Wings fans and Montreal fans have been at each other's throats as long as I've been on this beat about Zadina and Kakaniemi, and then there was a lot of trolling this year about the Red Wings obviously swept the Canadians despite only having, what, they have 15 wins in the whole season, 14 wins, something like that. Uh, I should know that. I should go check. But four of those (laughs) wins came against Montreal. Uh, and so I think among fan bases, hard not to think it's Montreal in some capacity, uh, but those don't always carry over the players. I'd, I'd be surprised if the players gave, you know, any craps who, you know, who drafted Kakaniami and who drafted, you know, Zadina in what order. So uh, maybe not a great answer, but uh, hopefully at least bought you a little bit of time to think. No, so with the abs, I think it's part of... wins, by the way. I think part of it with the abs is going to be whoever they're going against in Central Division that yeah. gives them the most problems. So, like, you look at when they played La- Nashville last night, I mean, it's still a good game, but it wasn't like what it was a couple years ago where it's like the Predators ran Dominion over the Avalanche and they were just the block they couldn't get over. Whereas if now you would argue it's probably St. Louis and Dallas 
Of course, the Minnesota Wild are still in that discussion. You kind of wonder a little bit about the Calgary Flames because of that playoff series last year. But yeah, let's for now say definitely the Minnesota Wild because that's a game that players and fans certainly do talk about. And especially this year, let's go with the Dallas Stars as well as the St. Louis Blues. All right, I love that answer. I think the Blues are a good one too because I think uh, you know they both kind of play that that full team, full lineup game. Like they're, I mean, McKinnon obviously is a superstar and to a degree that I don't think St. Louis has, uh, but I can see those teams having some really hard fought, hard contested playoff series over the next. Oh yeah, years. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Liv also had a follow up that I kind of like, inspired by Jared Bednar's jacket, which loved. Uh, which oh, loved thank that. you. <laughs> uh, which team night do you wish the NHL uh, or NHL teams had put had or would put more effort into with an existing one? With an existing one, um, could be either one. If there's a new one, or if you like, I wish they would do more with this. Well, if there's a new one, or better, if there's a new one or one that doesn't exist. If you're the Florida Panthers, you have to do like a Miami Vice night because you look at what the Heat have done with those colors. And maybe not necessarily that, but it would just be interesting because the 80s were such an interesting time. Yeah. I mean, in South Florida. Um, but as far as just like maybe a current night, Star Wars night is just so interesting because it's like it gives you an idea of how generational it is because we've now seen teams play off the Mandalorian. So there's that. But I don't know, that's an interesting question, because I mean, like, I guess as far as, like, current nights, it's interesting to see how teams, I think, handle something like Pride Night, because, like, yeah. there are teams, like, like, they definitely put interest in it, but, like, there are some teams that just make so much of an investment in it. It's just kind of curious to hear, like, what is the different strategy for how each team does it. So yeah. probably how they handled those nights, how they, how some teams did do a Black History Night, some teams have not done a Black History Night. Um, I don't know because I think the challenge with theme nights is is like, how do you do something that like fans are gonna like, but it's not corny or cheesy? So I don't know. I mean, I'd say maybe that would be it. What would you say? I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of directions it could go. I mean, Craig Cousins did a great story last year about uh, a night the NTDP did on like that was like sensory friendly night. Yes, those so are big. I think that's a fascinating one, and I think it's it's a great you know kind of accessibility. Uh, idea for hockey that doesn't get maybe as much attention, uh, but I think it's a great one in terms of expanding the community. I've long been banging the drum, though. I think if the Grateful so Dead... So the Houston Astros. Right. That's right. I, well, I'm the drum, not the trash. Game. Yes. I mean, I, I keep it uh, I keep it at least musical. Uh, I think There's going to be an Astro fan who listens to be like, I hate that guy in Denver. I can deal with that. Uh, <laughs> I think if the Grateful Dead get a theme night, the Kid Cudi should get a theme night. That's my. What if I told you there was a Grateful Dead theme night in Denver? No, there's a Grateful Dead theme night in Detroit too. And I'm just saying, when I'm 40, there better be Kid Cudi theme nights if the Grateful Dead get one. Oh, look, I agree. I mean, but like, that's what I think is just going to be so interesting. And now we're going up into a dangerous tangent because I say this to my wife all the time. And I've wanted to tweet this, but I'm so afraid if I do, people will be like, you're an idiot. I'm kind of terrified for the days when we're in our 60s and 70s yes. and we're like at a diner or an old restaurant with like our kids and grandkids and like they play Nicki Minaj Anaconda <laughs> and we're like, this is when music was music. And like, <laughs> that's where I'm going to be curious to see like when we're in our 40s and 50s, like will there be a Billie Eilish theme night where it's like whoever drinks the most blood sure. wins, you oh, know, yeah. or something Beaver, like Beaver that. night, baby. I mean... <laughs> That's going to be fascinating because it's like, and, and, and God, this is getting to a tangent, but it's like, what's stopping Beaver from being Elvis? Because it's like, you can go as like, bull cut Beaver. You can go as like, I'm your boyfriend, Justin Beaver. You can go as, I'm hanging out with Usher Beaver. You could go this form of Beaver where I'm going to try to score on Jordan Bennington. Special like, guest of DJ Khaled Beaver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, exactly. So, I mean, like, there's so many different routes. That's fair. That's fair enough. All right, I want to pause for a brief minute to ask you, our faithful, loyal listeners, to click into the show notes for today's episode and then follow the link that's there to a very short survey. You all know so much about us. I get... Uh, messages all the time about potential drinking game ideas based on the, the verbal ticks per shot that oh I have. We don't know anything about you guys. The survey is 11 super simple questions and will take you less than 60 seconds, I promise. So head to the show notes for today's episodes, click on the link. Thank you so much. All right, all right, back to the questions now here. Now that we've um, these questions are great. Yeah, do you have any that stick out to you? 
again, Jack Grindle being like, when will the pain stop? And someone named the Captain 1919 with the finger pointing up emoji. Yeah, that's that that's priceless because I mean here's the thing not being funny but it's just like that's what I think would be so fascinating to either cover this team in your case or if you're a Red Wing fan like what's this like because look there is a universal agreement that okay there's clearly things that need to be done yeah but like at what point do you just sit there and say I'm gonna check out because it's gonna take time or do you get fully invested living and dying on everything a young player does like what's that like because I mean. Like, I look at, let's say, like, the Kansas City Royals. And I only say this because, like, one of my best friends is a Royals fan. Sure. Like, for him, he had always kind of accepted the Royals are the Royals. You're going to have the Carlos Beltrons, the Zach Grankies, like, those players that come through. But at the same time, for him, like, the minute he found out Ken Harvey was on Twitter, he started following Ken Harvey. Right. And it's like... He was an all-star once, but sure, whatever. And then they start winning. They go to win a World Series. And now all of a sudden, you're just like looking at the Royals. Do you go back to that? Or do you think lightning can strike twice? And that's what's so interesting, I think, about the Red Wings is like you look at their past and clearly history suggests they can figure it out. So what do you do? Do you go all in hoping that's the case? Or do you go all in realizing this might take a while? I think it's just fascinating. Yeah. No, I think it's true. And I, you know, I, I was talking to a friend today who, who's kind of making sure that he's consciously getting in now and, and kind of, uh, you know, learning more about the team, watching the team more so that he cannot be accused of being a bandwagoner uh, if they eventually do get good again. He's getting in on the ground floor. I think that's kind of an interesting dichotomy here is like, you know, attracting new fans uh, or, or kind of getting old fans reinvested at, at a base level where they can really know these players from the roots up. Like they, they can get to know guys from from draft night and in some cases even before draft night, all the way into whoever is going to shape the next Red Wings contender. Well, and not only that, but like I just think about something you asked earlier about like the Avalanche and how fans were. Yeah. You look at a city like Denver, where like look to some degree compared to Detroit, people care, but it's a different level of care. But everyone is so insane about the Broncos that like. Some some years the Rockies are two, some year it's the Avs. I mean, you look at the Nuggets now, they draw, but it's not like the Avalanche. If I look at Detroit, and like people in this city and in this state, they care about the teams. But it's like, what's it like to be a team in this era where right now, like the Pistons are having their struggles, the Tigers are definitely having their struggles. I mean, you look at the Lions and it's like, okay. And now you look at the Wings and it's just kind of like, What's it like to be a fan in a city like this where you're hoping for some sort of breakthrough, wondering if it'll even come? Because even when you look at the University of Michigan with football, like, I mean, look, when you stand back, you think about what Harbaugh's done on paper. It's like, wow, 10 win seasons are big. Ole Miss has only ever had two in its history. But when you think about the fanfare he came with, the money, the whole thing, you look at those years and go like, has it really been what we've expected? Huh. So, like, again, it's just such a fascinating study, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll close on this one then. And it's a, it's a, it's a tweet that's a link to a TikTok of, of I don't know if you saw this happen the other night. Luke the Lin Girl Scout cookies? Yeah, Luke Lindenheim traded. Because someone offered that in Denver. Stuff. Did they? Yeah, there was a fan, no joke, there was a Very fan who had a sign that said, I will trade something for, like, a box of Thin Mints, and no one took it. Interesting. All right. Well, then I'm going to ask you, in the spirit of the trade deadline having just passed, grade this trade. Luke Glendening ships out one warm-up puck and receives back Thin Mints. No futures attached, no conditions on, on any of the uh, pieces either way. How would you grade that trade? It's a great trade that Luke Glendening won because here's why. He doesn't even own the puck. The That's team true. owns the puck. Oh, so it's, it's like – So, like, it's exactly. Like, he's literally taking something he just picked up that he doesn't own – and now he's trading it for something that he and only he good asset can management. have asset value toward. Like, and not only that, but like, here's the other thing about like. Well, the, he can probably she probably shares those. I, I mean, he could, but like, here's the thing about the thin mints. So, like, the thing is this: like, you know, if you want more thin mints, like, you know where the production line for thin mints are. Like, you know what the price is. You know what the term is. You know that you can have them on term. You know you can have them under a certain deal, and it's not yeah. going to break your salary cap. But with the person who got the puck, here's the problem with the puck. If you want a puck, it's going to get a lot harder to find that puck in terms of a game or a practice use puck as opposed to a box of thin mints. So Glenn Denning went hands down. Interesting. All right. So what, what grade do you give each side of the trade? What grade do you give the fan who traded the thin mints for the puck? B plus. B plus. And Glenn Denning? 
Oh, A plus. And the thing is, it's not that the fan made a bad trade. It's just the fan had something that they owned the trade. Whereas yeah. if Glenn Denning had something he'd never owned to begin with and parlayed it into a box. See, of See, my my bet though is the we fan, are really going in depth on this. The fan had a surplus of something. Like like imagine the Thinmints is like a good defenseman, but they have a stacked. I mean, who knows how many boxes of Thin Mints this girl... Presumably, it's a Girl Scout, right? Who knows how many boxes they had just sitting in a wagon in their garage. They trade one of them. They get a puck. Glendening has access to unlimited puck. I think for both sides, this was trading for surplus. I agree, though, that Glendening gets the higher grade because it wasn't really even his puck to begin with. Now, see, when you said this person was a Girl Scout, because, like, what if they weren't? What because, if they had to because Because, like, because like let's, say they, let's say they bought a box of Thin Mints. Is that box of Thin Mints worth what a puck would be? But then again, that's where it gets interesting because now you're, but I know, but that's what I'm saying. Now you're, now you're attaching like emotional, sentimental value to it, which to bring it full circle back to HGTV, which when you bring it back to HGTV, because we are these people, like you talk every time, like you see it, it's just like, look, the seller's grandparents built this house in like the 1940s. And it's like, that's great. You still got foundational and termite issues. Here is my price where we walk away. So again, like. You have to factor that in. Glendening we, exploited emotional uh, emotional trading on the part of the fan, the, the other GM in this trade. I mean, he could have got more. I mean, Interesting. He, like he like seriously, Power he, into he, it. seriously, he could have got more because like if you're him, you could have just said because God, this is we are terrible human beings. Because what he could have said was like, look, this is the time when people are selling Girl Scout cookies. So here's the deal I'm willing to make you if you because I mean, granted. You know, you just don't know what people's schedule are. But let's say you could say to that fan, be it our next game or be it our next practice, I'll give you a puck for a box of Thin Mints, a box of Samoas, and a, a, a box of, like, uh, the Tagalongs, I think is what they're called, uh, the, the peanut butter and chocolate. Like, you could have done that. So, I mean, but again, it's a great it's trade. It's a road game. I think you got to take the deal when it's there. But where is the road game? I think it was Ottawa. Because what was your schedule after? I don't think they're back in Ottawa. No, but what I'm saying is, like, were they still, like, in Canada, or did they... No, they came back. This was, like, two days ago. Okay, then at that point, then, yeah, it's, it's the best trade you could possibly make. All right. I like I like A-plus for Glenn Denning, B-plus for the fan. I think yeah. that's a good... That's a good uh, well, actually, it's an A-plus-plus for Glenn Denning, because here's the thing. It wasn't his puck. But, but, it was Ottawa's puck. So you're going from... He could have got more, but it's still an A+. Well, now that you sit there and you think about all the different things, because, like, if you really want me to get really, really, really jerkish on this, I could play in the fact of the Canadian exchange rate and the fact mm. that he doesn't have to pay taxes on that box. So here's the thing. Does like, he have to declare he, it, like, Here's the thing. Like, With he Exactly. Exactly. He doesn't have to worry about taxes or conversion. Let me stop here. So here's the thing. Before I did this, my choices in life were either to become a chemical engineer, a CIA analyst, or a financial analyst. So oh, the fact we can swear on this, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're just now telling. Strategically waited to tell you. Yeah. Wow, thanks, <laughs> Max. Jesus, all this time I've been like, let me make sure I say the right thing, <laughs> and you just go and drop that. There are kids listening. You don't care about the kids. We out here talk about Girl Scout cookies. You out here swearing. What kind of example is that setting? I think they need to know what the real world's like. See, you claim to be from Grand Rapids, <laughs> but with that kind of mouth, man, like, you're no Michigander. I don't know what you are, but to be serious, like, it is one of those things where, like, the more and more you sit here and you think about this, you're like, do you include exchange rate? Do you include, like, taxes you're paying on this? Do you include the fact that you're able to get this past duty-free, even though, like, you presumably it's going back into its country of origin? Like, right. let's, let's just stop here, because this is going to go all night now. Yeah, all right. I like that as an endpoint. Thank you so much of for for course. doing this. Thank you for having thanks me. Thanks for uh, thanks for for using your your one of your few nights in Detroit each year to uh, to do this. We also had a really nice dinner beforehand. So hopefully oh yeah, you know. dude. I mean, here's the thing. Like my like I said to you, I mean, my wife and I we lived in Michigan, and she's a Michigan State grad. And I mean, yeah. like, look, I think Detroit is just such an awesome place, and to see what this city is becoming, you know, again, it's just it's fantastic. So like, anytime like we can do stuff, I'm always going to do it. Now that being said, and People were probably going to boo if it was up to my wife. She would make every supermarket in this world a mire. Absolutely. We love Meyer. Why do people boo? Oh, I don't know. I hope they don't think, like, oh, you're playing to an audience. But, like, oh, no, like, we love Meyer. No, seriously. Like, she she thinks everything is inferior to Meyer. I would tend to agree. And we'll leave it there. Maybe we might have to cut that so that we don't end up uh, accidentally giving them uh, sponsor coverage. We'll see. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in the middle of the week. I'll talk to you then.